You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning again. Sounds like now that school's back in session, they have forgotten to turn the bell off that dismisses students uh, here for us. And so... You know, maybe some of you teachers can fill in this sentence. I used to hear it all the time in uh, school growing up. The bell does not dismiss you. I dismiss you, okay? So if you feel some temptation to gather all your stuff and head out when you hear that bell, service isn't over just quite yet. Hang in there a little bit more, uh, and we'll send you on our way. Hopefully by next week we can uh, get that back on the summer, the summer protocol for the dismissal bell. Let's pray and look at Nehemiah, uh, the last part of chapter 5 together. God, thank you for Nehemiah's life and leadership that in many ways is just put before us an example to consider for ourselves. And I just think specifically this morning as we look at this passage, the call you have on us as your people to be influencers, to impact those around us, to be, as, as Jesus said, salt and light. God, I pray that you would use this passage to just mobilize us and call us to serve you in your world, your way. God, I pray that you would raise from this room influencers, leaders who lead the way Jesus did with a towel and a basin of water washing feet. God, make us servants like Jesus was, like we see Nehemiah in this passage. Help us to use our homes and our lives and our dinner tables to welcome the forgotten, those who don't know you, those who are disabled or um, distant from us in some way or another. God, help us to serve and to love like Nehemiah did. And Lord, lastly, I just pray, man, there may be some in this room that, that don't know your grace. They don't know you in the reality of who you are. 
Lord, I pray that they would hear your gracious invitation from your own, from your own heart, from your own mouth this morning. Would you call to yourself people to begin a life with you, to begin a relationship with you? Spirit of the living God, would you attend to your word now as we consider it together and submit to it as your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I, as we were beginning, Nehemiah, have been looking forward to this passage for quite a while. Um, not, not to like boast, but there are just different areas of study that pastors, you know, maybe have really focused on in seminary or something like that. So you may have a passage that highlights where a pastor has studied, you know, a certain aspect of Hebrew poetry or a certain aspect of Paul's letters. Like they've really focused on that and studied on it. And uh, I have a particular just... Um, interest, and I would even say expertise in this passage, not because of any Hebrew scholarship or, uh, you know, knowledge about what's happening historically here, but because what we see happening in verse 17 is Nehemiah preparing hundreds of pounds of meat uh, for, for the people. And that for me is just something that I've given uh, myself a, a, a particular study towards. And so I feel especially called and excited to consider uh, Nehemiah and his hosting of tables together with you this morning. Um, as we zoom out, this is what we see Nehemiah doing in this passage. He's impacting his community. And he's impacting his community really through two ways. He's, we see in this passage, he's, he's the governor. So he's a leader for the, the people during that time. Uh, so we see Nehemiah as a, as a governor and as, as a host. If I were to have a title for this, pa- this, uh, this message, which I never do, uh, but for note takers, you can just call it uh, governance and grub. Uh, that is how Nehemiah impacted uh, the people who were in his community. And I do want to give that particular focus, Nehemiah's impact on the people around him. Because this week, really, the the way this chapter is structured is set up to be a contrast for what we saw last week. Remember last week we saw people who were in power, people who had leadership, using that leadership, that power, that influence uh, negatively, sinfully. They were using their, their position of influence to actually take from people. We defined in, in the Bible, uh, the unrighteous person is the one who disadvantages others for the sake of self. But the righteous person in the Bible isn't just someone who lives like a morally neutral life and doesn't break any rules. The righteous person is the one who disadvantages self for the sake of others. And that is what we see Nehemiah doing in this passage. We see him not only opposing what the people were doing, taking advantage of those who were suffering earlier in the chapter, we see Nehemiah emptying out from his own life, giving, serving for the people uh, who are in Jerusalem during that time. And so as we consider our own call to be influencers, to impact those who are around us, I want to look really at these two areas, okay? Nehemiah, number one, is a leader. And then secondly, Nehemiah as a host. Uh, And we're going to consider together how God might call us to to impact the lives around us through those two avenues, through leadership and through hosting uh, dinner tables uh, where we gather people around. And so we'll look at each of those areas in turn. Let's begin by considering together Nehemiah's impact as a leader. So, Up to this point, we've already seen Nehemiah leading. We've seen him gathering people together to rebuild the wall. Uh, We've seen him encouraging the people to continue even in, in the work, even when they were discouraged. What shifts in this chapter is we learn something new about Nehemiah's leadership in that he was actually given a formal title. He's regarded as the governor of Jerusalem during that time. 
We don't know exactly how he became the governor. Did King Artaxerxes appoint him to that? Did the people somehow appoint him to that role? We're not quite sure, but he becomes the governor and he serves as the governor for 12 years. And, and what we see happening as a result of his governance, of his leadership, is not Nehemiah's life being bettered as a result of his leadership. We see the people he led being blessed, uh, being given advantages, being served as a result of his leadership. And so let's look at his leadership together, and I just want to draw a couple observations out of it. Uh, and then I want to consider how it was he did that. And so here's just the first observation, simple one that I want us to make from Nehemiah's example. The first one is this. God's people, God's people should aspire to lead. God's people should aspire to lead. Uh, maybe you don't regard yourself in any way as a leader. Uh, maybe you like to be behind the scenes and not really uh, influence anything. Hear this point. God's people should aspire to lead. Let's remember where this whole story began. It, at this point, Nehemiah is the governor of an entire city. Where it began, where was he? He was a cupbearer in the presence of the king, and he was very faithful with his responsibilities there. Uh, but he wasn't doing much leadership or influencing of anyone. But what happens in Nehemiah's life? He sees a problem. He sees a need. And he begins to perhaps think through praying and seeking the Lord in light of that need that God might actually use his life to make a difference in the midst of it. Nehemiah sees a gap. He sees a problem. He sees a need that needs to be filled, and he aspires to lead in the midst of that. And what I want us to hear this morning is that we and God's people should do the same thing. There should be aspirations that we have for God to use us to influence either the church or the world around us. So one simple passage that, that comes to mind when we talk about God's people aspiring to lead, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is specifically talking about elders, but I think we can zoom out and consider both that and other areas of leadership. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer or a, a pastor, uh, so there's someone who's aspiring, hey, I desire to lead in the church uh, in that specific way. Uh, Paul doesn't say, oh, that's just, you know, being proud, you know, let God stir that desire in you. No, he says, if you desire that, you desire a good thing, you desire a noble task, it is good for God's people to desire to lead. Similarly, whether it's aspiring to the office of an overseer or it's aspiring to, to any area where you are influencing the lives of other people, God's people should aspire to lead. I, I, I once heard a leader in my own life say, really, to, to be a Christian at, at a most baseline level is in fact to be a leader. So whether you view yourself as a leader or not, to even be a follower of Jesus is to be a leader. Why? Because no matter who you are in this faith journey that we're on, we are all, every last one of us as followers of Jesus called to do what? Make disciples. That is something that is not just on, uh, you know, clergy or professionals. All of us are called to make disciples. And what is it to make a disciple but to lead, but to show the way, 
to set an example, to, to speak as to what it is to, to believe in Christ and to follow him. So if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are in fact called to lead. And so let me just throw some opportunities, a buffet of opportunities that maybe God would call you to partake in here in, in, in the near future. Uh, simple area, discipleship group leaders. There are many in our church that have been receiving and, 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 and kind of following for a long time. I want to urge you, uh, you know, especially members of New City, maybe God would call you to perhaps lead a discipleship group. Maybe if not a discipleship group, another area in our church where we need more leaders is in our regional communities. As Sam brought up earlier, we want to see us dispersed from these Sunday gatherings as a big group into smaller gatherings where we can share some food with one another and get to know each other. There is incredible value in that, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but we need people to rise up and say, hey, yeah, Manassas Park, I will lead that. Wellington, I will lead that. Uh, other areas, I will step up and facilitate opportunities for people to gather together. Maybe it's simply leading by jumping in, in into our kids' classroom. We already talked about this morning how we've got a, a gaggle, a gaggle of kids that, that need people that will open up the Bible and, and lead, and, and lead even the youngest ones among us. Maybe more formally, God would have some people in this room lead as deacons. Those are the servant leaders in the church. Maybe there are some even in this room that would aspire, like we read a moment ago, to the office of an elder or an overseer. I don't know where the Lord might call those of you in this room to lead, but the, but the simple point is this. We see from Nehemiah, we should aspire to it. That's not a proud thing. It can actually be a false humility to say, oh, I can't lead anybody. You know, woe is me. We, we ought to aspire to lead. That's, that's the first point, but it needs this very, very important second uh, qualification, this follow-up, if you will. Number one, God's people should aspire to lead. Number two, we aspire to, to, to lead so that we can give, not get. Okay, let me say that one more time. We lead in order as God's people to give, not to get. That is the key qualifier to servant leadership. It's more than just doing a bunch of stuff because you can do a bunch of stuff for people with you at the center of it, with you the ultimate focus of it. But to lead as, as, as God would have you is to lead in order to give, in order to serve, in order, in order to be a blessing to other people, not just yourself. We see that unfolding in this passage. Let's look at it a little bit more closely. So Nehemiah is setting up a contrast in this passage between the leaders who had gone before him and his style of leadership. Let's look at how uh, the other people led here in verse 15. He says, the former governors who were before me, man, they laid heavy burdens on the people. And this is the key, took from them. The former governors, their style of leadership was to take. They took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now let's contrast that with Nehemiah's style of leadership down at the bottom of verse 17, or sorry, at the, in verse 18. Now what was prepared at my expense, Nehemiah says. So here's the contrast. The former governors were leading and they would take from people. We saw last week, even some of the leaders seeing those who were in great need, giving them loans and charging very high interests so that they could benefit off of the suffering of the people in their community. Nehemiah not only didn't engage in that wicked practice, Nehemiah says, from my expense, 
from my own resources, I was in a position of leadership to give. So we see that in a number of ways with Nehemiah in this passage. So one, what was customary in those days was a meal tax, where those who were in leadership apparently would host very elaborate meals. And so they would tax the people who were uh, there in order to fund and host these, these very elaborate meals. Nehemiah says, I didn't do any of that. In fact, I paid for those meals myself. Uh, what was else uh, known about these leaders is that they would at times take land from people. Man, how many of us watch politicians enter into office uh, with no real, you know, uh, money that would, you know, uh, cause any, anyone to, uh, you know, uh, they, they had no wealth when they enter into their office, but when they leave the office, somehow they're some of the most wealthiest people in society. Those are those that use their position to take, to acquire. Nehemiah says, in my governance, I took no land from anyone. We also see that, that some of the servants even of the other leaders uh, would lord it over those who were in the, in the population. Nehemiah said, we weren't having any of that. Those who worked with me actually continued to work on the wall. So they weren't lording it over the common people who weren't leaders. They were right there beside them rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah demonstrates for us examples of leading by giving, not taking a leadership role to get. And Nehemiah, of course, is just a small example of something that is stated so explicitly from Jesus himself. Would you turn with me in your Bible over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10? Mark 10, 42. I want to read with you together this morning. It says, and Jesus called to them, called, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Sounds just like the leaders back in Nehemiah. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the world's way of leading is by getting a position of authority and getting for self. Christ's way of leaving, leading is by getting a position of authority and giving out of love for the people that we lead. The world measures leadership by how many people are under you. The Lord measures leadership by how many people you are under serving in humility. So speaking broadly about this, can we just transition and just, just talk practically about some places where some servant leadership might show up in our own lives. I want us to aspire to lead but to lead in a manner to serve and to give, not to get. Man, let's just start in the home. And I want to just, as a man, talk to the men in this room. A reminder that we daily forget. We are called as men to lead in our homes. How? Like the governors in Nehemiah's day before him? No, like the Lord Jesus with a basin of water and a towel that serve. Men in our homes, let's lead by being the first one to wash the dishes. The first one, as often as we want to find excuses not to, 
to change the diaper. And I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to you. Uh, by being the first ones to ask, hey, I know it's been a hard week on you. How can I uh, give you a chance to get out and get some rest and, and some time with some people for yourself? Uh, by being the first ones, let's lead by, by serving, by being the first ones to apologize, even if it's, I know it is, it's 90% their fault, right? Your kids, your wife, but let's be the ones, even if it's only 10% us, let's lead by being the first ones to apologize. Let's lead as servants by initiating in prayer. Let's lead as servants by opening our Bibles, even if just briefly, to, to read God's word over our family. Let's lead in the home. Secondly, let's lead in the church by serving. Let's find opportunities where our volunteer coordinators are never scrambling to find anyone because we say, sure, I'd be eager to jump in and help. Let's lead in our workplaces by serving. I'm sure there are menial tasks in your workplace that nobody wants to do. Let's run towards those uh, with an eagerness to serve, with an eagerness to come under the people in our midst, okay? Let's lead in these different areas to give, not to get. And let me just hit one more area of leadership that I think is important before we move on. There are ways we can serve as leaders, like practically, where we, you know, wash the dishes and do the job at work that nobody wants to do. Those are, those are like very obvious practical things. Just personally, here's what I've had to learn about leading um, in, in, in different roles through, through my own life, even as a young leader as I am. There are these practical areas that, that we can serve, but listen, oftentimes we step into a leadership role where on the outside we can look like servants, but inwardly we are in that role to fill some deep desire that we have. And we are looking to that leadership role in order to fulfill it for us. What, what do I mean by that? Something you really value that you maybe even idolize in your life is control. You hate when things get out of control. You hate feeling like you, you don't have a handle on things. And so a leadership position is a way to, to have some influence, to have your way, uh, to, to hold things together and to have some control. And so while you may even be doing servant things on the outside, inwardly what you're looking to get as opposed to give in, in leading is control. Maybe you don't care about control. Maybe what you like is just respect. You, you like to be in a role so that you're admired, so people can notice your accomplishments and you get some kind of significance out of it. Uh, maybe something that you idolize in leadership is just being liked. You like to be applauded. You like when people affirm you and a, a leadership role is taken so that you can be affirmed in, in being liked. I don't know what kind of drives you internally, what deep desires you have. But if you end up in a leadership role relying on it to fulfill your desire for control, your desire to be liked, your desire to be respected, you'll end up putting something on that leadership role that it cannot fulfill for you. It cannot fulfill for you. And you'll end up uh, burning out and, and hating all of it because it was never meant to fulfill those things. So how then, whether it's with these deep heart desires or just our lack of desire to wash the dishes, how was it that Nehemiah was able to, to set this example of servant leadership. There is a key quality that Nehemiah had that the other leaders didn't have that I want you to also observe back in Nehemiah 5. Let me read verse 15 one more time. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and there's that word again, took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over them, 
but I did not do so. Why did Nehemiah not do so? Because of the fear of God. We keep coming back to that phrase, the fear of God. And being, having the fear of God does not mean we're afraid of God or that we, we stay at a distance from him. That's not what that word means in the Bible. The, the, the fear of the Lord is when God moves from an idea, a distant reality, uh, when, when following him moves from just kind of going through the motions of church, the, the fear of the Lord is when God himself becomes real to us as he actually is. When the God of the universe and all of his grandeur and all of his glory is, is something that we are internally aware of and we, we stand in awe of who he truly is. When you have this kind of reverential fear in your soul before the God of the universe, you will lead as a servant. Why? Because the worldly leader says uh, that doesn't have the fear of the Lord, I'm a big deal, so my role is about me. The one who fears the Lord says, Jesus is a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. It's all about him. And this is why our weekly worship, your own personal time with God is so important uh, because it's not just to feel good. It changes the, the inner workings of your life where God moves from just a distant reality, a distant idea to one that you stand in awe of. So how was it that Nehemiah led as, as a servant rather than someone who took for himself? He did it by, by, by a real fear, a real awareness, walking in the reality of who God was. So that's Nehemiah's example as a leader. I want to also look at this other example of him this morning as a host, as a host. I think for most of us here this morning could readily, you know, we're talking about impacting lives, right? And well, yeah, to be a leader that, that would most certainly impact lives. Like, we're, we're aware of that. I don't know how aware we are of how significant of an impact we can have by just having somebody over for dinner. We looked at Nehemiah's impact as a leader. I mean, people's lives were bettered as a result of his leadership. Nehemiah didn't personally benefit, but the people he led, they benefited from his leadership. But I don't know how many of us would quickly think how much of an impact we could have on someone's life by simply hosting dinner. Let's just read one more time how he did it. I love this man. Verse 17, let's read about it. Uh, Moreover, there were at my table... 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that surrounded us. And really, verse 18 is the key. If you get nothing else, this is what you need to take away this morning. And now what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox. Have you ever seen an ox before? That's probably a 2,000-pound animal that's being prepared for these people. An ox, and that wasn't enough. We needed a variety of meat, not just beef. We also wanted uh, some, some sheep and birds. Uh, and every 10 days, they had all kinds of wine and abundance. So Nehemiah is hosting some pretty lavish parties, but listen to this. That, that was a normal pattern for, for kind of governors to have the, these big dinners in, in those ways. We see that he's, he's financing these dinners on his own. There's a little phrase we might have missed that I think is significant for us in, in this little reading. 
Because for Nehemiah, it was more than just filling bodies with calories so that they could go build a wall. This was more than just getting people their daily amount of protein and other nutrients that they needed to move through their life. Here's the the phrase that captures me. There were at my table. At my table. Nehemiah could have packed up some uh, lunches to go and sent people out to the wall to work, but he, he understood, and the Bible understood, the significance of what can take place at our dinner tables. Well, what I want us to realize this morning is this. Man, when we set the table and, and host people for dinner, lunch, brunch, whatever type of day or time of day that you might want to host them, when we set the table with food, we actually set the table for some deep connection and even impact in people's lives. And I think we just so commonly and frequently eat that that we can sometimes miss this, just how impactful someone's life can uh, can be changed by the meals that we host for them. You know, in uh, Latin, the, the word that, that comes for companion is from these two Latin words, meaning both um, uh, together and bread. How do you have a companion in your life? Two things. You get people together and bread on the table. Man, something powerful can happen when we open up our dinner tables for people's lives. Opening up our dinner table can open up the opportunity to change someone's life. It can be a powerful tool, and I think this is found in cultures all across the world, the significance that eating a meal together can share. Uh, I remember being fully out of my world back when we were spending a little bit of time in Texas, and I was invited, maybe some of you, have you ever heard of this before? A cowboy church? Uh, have any of you heard of this? Not like the Dallas Cowboys, like real cowboys, a, a, a church for cowboys, people who ride horses and catch cows and are missing teeth. It's, it's a church for real, real, real cowboys. That, that's who they, they minister to. And we were invited to one and we're like, all right, like all things to all people, let's, let's go. I've spent a lot of time in the South, but this was a especially like out of my norm type experience. This is kind of what they do. They have their church building and then behind their building was a, a rodeo. So this was their community outreach where we might like host a barbecue. They have a rodeo behind the, the building where it was just a full dirt floor, bleachers, and people would come and they would, you know, see the kinds of things people did at the rodeo. And, and we were invited to one event called Senior Night. And we, well, what, what were they doing? Like, you know, bingo for seniors, not senior high school. Like, what do we call a senior? 60? Is that, I don't, I don't quite know the mark. I don't know where you land uh, on, that, on the age number. Uh, maybe it's just whatever you identify as. Wherever you identify, that, that, then, then you mean it was senior night. So it was for those who were, who were a little bit older, but they weren't having bingo. They weren't doing karaoke. It was senior bull riding night, okay? So what that means is, you know that 2,000-pound ox I just described? These older men and women into their 60s, upper 60s, even early 70s, were riding on bulls until they were thrown off and nearly kicked in the face and sent, you know, to the hospital unconscious. Uh, That's what was happening. So we felt completely out of our world. We're watching this whole thing take place. And uh, they also had off to the side a particular ministry with this rodeo. It was called the Chuck Wagon. And when we walked in 
into this. It's this cafeteria that was just like Nehemiah's table, okay? There was brisket and burgers and chicken and all kinds of different drinks, and they had some of the best pie you will ever eat, and you just go on up, and you fill up your plate, and I just get to the end, and my kids load it up, so I just, you know, ask the question, like, hey, how much is it? And this is the response. It's free. It's free, and this is what people would do. They would just come. All kinds of people in their community that don't know Jesus at all would come, get a big plate of food, go sit at some tables together, and have a meaningful conversation about some of the things happening in their lives. And I just took from that experience this. As otherworldly of an experience this was for somebody who was born in D.C., like even being at senior night at the bull riding rodeo, there was a connection that took place being from other cultures, as we sat across the table and ate food with one another. That doesn't dismiss you. Uh, <laughs> so don't gather your, don't gather your Bibles. Um, there was a connection that was happening between human beings on a deeper level at these tables. And so I'm proposing it out there. I'm setting the vision. Let's start a rodeo here. Uh, let's give that a try. Joe Cooper can be in charge of senior night at the, at, at the rodeo. No, I'm, I'm not proposing that we have a rodeo. I am proposing us recognize the impact we can have on people's lives by getting around the table and sharing a meal with one another. Getting around the table, opening up uh, our, our food and opening up our lives with one another. This is why we're emphasizing regional communities. And I hope that you will jump in on one. If you missed this last, uh, last Sunday's gathering, I hope by September you'll, you'll jump in on one and just see the significance, even corporately, for us to get together in regions as a church, sharing a meal together, slowing down a little bit on a Sunday afternoon, uh, spending some time, one another, asking about what's going on in each other's lives. I think that can be significant. Again, not just to get our daily amount of calories, but as Nehemiah said, to have people around our table. You can sign up for a regional community online. We continue to need leaders for these. If that's something that you might, uh, you know, at some point want to serve in, uh, we would love to see that happen on, on kind of an organized church level. But just, just one more area I want to encourage this for us as a church is just through ordinary hospitality together. Uh, moving from these kind of organized events that we do as a church where we share a meal together, where it just becomes a part of your life in some rhythm where you welcome people in your home to share a meal with them. There is a key difference between hosting and hospitality, okay? Hosting is usually about the host. Hosting is often saying, you know, well, look at these wonderful decorations in my house and how clean I keep my house and look at this great meal I can have and my wonderful wine selection that I can offer. Hosting on the outside looks, you know, uh, very humble, very loving, but at the end of it, it might be like we talked about before, doing it actually for self. Even if you're loading up the table with incredible food like Nehemiah was, hosting can still be about you. Hospitality, that's not about you. You know what hospitality means in the Bible? It simply means to befriend strangers. Having people in your home, uh, whether it looks pristine or whether it's a mess, whether you've got uh, an ox to serve or it's just uh, spaghetti that night. Uh, hospitality is about serving other people, having uh, people in your home to serve and to bless them. Nehemiah even did it across cultural lines. So he is here having many of the officials that were in Jerusalem around his table. I love this though. It also says that from 
the nations that were around him, he also had uh, uh, people there. He, he was crossing cultural lines in his home. Let me just ask you this. There, there are people you could have in your home where you click with immediately. It's very easy. When you think about your dinner table, though, let me just give a few categories. Do you ever think about the socially awkward person? The single person? The single mom? The cultural outsider? The neighbor across the street that you've never maybe introduced yourself to? Do you ever think about those that aren't ordinarily invited in to have them around your dinner table? That's what hospitality looks like. There's an incredible book by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Many of you have, I think, read this book. We've, we've emphasized it a lot in the history of our church. It's called The Gospel Comes with the House Key. I, I just want to read a little reading that she has about how she thinks about Sundays, and, and maybe it'll provoke something in your own imagination. So uh, Rosaria says, my favorite day of the week is the Lord's Day, and I want to share that day with others. Kent, who is her husband, and I open up our home after worship to anyone who will come. We must. We remember what it's like to be a new Christian to be single, to have secrets that get you alone and torment you, and to have no place to go after worship. She describes this odd tearing apart of the body of Christ as each retreats to her own corner or click while the benediction still rings in the air. She says, it's an act of cruelty to people in your church who routinely have no place to belong, no place to need and be needed after worship. Worship leaves us full and open, and we need one another. So she says, know that someone is spared another spiral binge of pornography because he is instead playing Connect Four with you or walking the dogs or jumping on the trampoline. Know that these small things that you may take for granted have been the Lord's appointed way of escape for a brother or sister. Know that someone is spared the fear and darkness of depression because she is needed at your house, always on the Lord's day. And the day she is never alone, but instead safely in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied upon. Rosaria Butterfield sets the example of opening up her dinner table to friends, yes, to people she normally connects with, yes, but also to those who on a Sunday afternoon or a Tuesday evening or a Saturday morning have no other place to go. Man, brothers and sisters, I just want you to, to see it's, it's often the very simple things in our life that we can do that the Lord uses powerfully. Your dinner table might just be the most sacred place in your home for you to open it up to people who otherwise have no place to go to be welcomed in Again, not just to be given calories, but to be given a place of belonging at your table. Let me close by just asking you this question under the theme of meals. How would you, just knowing what you know about Jesus, fill in this blank? The Son of Man came, fill in the blank. The Son of Man came, fill in the blanks. The, the son of man is, is a royal title. It's a title of significance describing uh, the one who has all authority and all power. So how might you fill in that blank? The son of man came. The New Testament does in three separate ways. It says the three following things compared to con concerning Jesus. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Secondly, we actually read it earlier. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The third one might surprise us. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Do you know that it was known about Jesus, like the the reputation he carried amongst the religious who criticized him was that he was a glutton and a drunkard. That's what he was regarded as because he would go to these meals with these sort of social outcasts, tax collectors and sinners, and it was just known about him that he came eating and drinking. The author Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, describes those three instances of Jesus uh, coming as the Son of Man uh, this way. The first two describe what he came to do. The third describes how he did it. How did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? How did he come to give his, to come to give his life as a ransom for many? And he came by eating and drinking with some of the most unworthy outcast people in his society. And as he was accused of being lavish or gluttonous or indulgent in the meals that he took place in, man, the real indulgence that was happening in that moment was an indulgence from Jesus of grace, of grace to the people that he ate with. Because as he shared a meal with these outcasts, these lost people, he was sharing a welcome to lost, broken, sinful people to himself. And so, as we get ready to consider this son of man who came eating and drinking, the communion table for us is, if we eat it properly, the most lavish, the most indulgent, the most over-the-top meal you will ever have. It's even more so than the meals that Nehemiah was throwing. It's because, once again, Meals are not just meals in and of themselves. They point to something deeper. They point to to relational connection. Uh, they, They point to something bigger going on between relational beings. And while this meal is so simple, I mean, it's basic like bulk wine from Costco, okay? There's nothing especially, uh, you know, great. This wasn't Nehemiah's wine that, that we have every week. It's very basic. And it's a piece of bread from a, gross, a local grocery store. It's, it's, it's very basic, but it's what it points to that makes it the most lavish, over-the-top, expensive meal you'll ever have in your life. Because as you take the bread and as you take the cup and you think about what it symbolizes, it brings you into communion with God's Son. It brings you into connection with the reality that God was willing to give up his life for you. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you can come forward to this table, this table of fellowship, and hear from God the invitation, come and welcome. The bread and the cup are simple, but they point to the reality that the bread symbolizing Jesus gave his body for you. The cup symbolizes that Jesus poured out his own blood for you. Come and don't just take the the simple elements. Come and partake of the deeper reality that they point to. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't believe the truths that I'm sharing this morning about what Jesus has come to do, you've not come to a place in your life where you say, I am sinful, I am lost, my only hope is what Jesus did for me. I just want to urge you to stay in your seat Man, but I feel led this morning to read, man, the most powerful invitation uh, that I could ever think of that's found in Isaiah 55. If you are not following Jesus right now, please stay in your seat, but hear this gracious invitation from God himself. 
Isaiah 55. Let me read a few verses here as we get ready to come to the table. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? The Lord says, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. A few verses later, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. What's being said in this kind of poetic description of, of coming to God, it, it's, it's an invitation to humanity, anyone who will receive it, anyone who will hear. God is saying, come to me and be satisfied. You've spent your whole life chasing down, consuming things, whether it's real food or some other thing in this world, thinking that will satisfy you, that will make you happy, that will give your life meaning. But he asks rhetorically, why are you going to spend your money on what doesn't satisfy? Come to the place, come to the source, the only thing that can truly satisfy what you've been looking for. Jesus came to us opening the way for us to turn our back on all the things we think will satisfy us but never truly can, to find true, deep, and lasting satisfaction in the God of the universe. So he says in closing, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Simply put, this morning if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, the invitation from God himself this morning is forsake your way. Forsake the way you've been living. Turn your back on that and turn to Jesus for the salvation that he offers you. Let me pray for us now as we get ready to come to this incredible, incredibly expensive meal that's been purchased for us uh, by the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom. Let's pray together now. So Lord, as we come to the table, could we just see what's behind it? Could we, even though we take it regularly, experience what these elements symbolize? Could we experience your life given for us? Could we experience the communion with you that's offered as we contemplate and put our faith in the finished work of Jesus? Carry us right now, Lord Jesus, from consuming these elements into deep communion with you as we sing these songs, as we confess our sin, as we forsake our wicked way, as we trust in you again, God, would you bring us now into the true meaning of the table, communion and fellowship with you. You purchased it for us with your own life on the cross. Your body went down into the grave, and then on the third day you were raised to give us new life and everlasting fellowship with you. So Lord, draw us in now, we pray, into the kind of table fellowship that you've designed through this meal, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can hang out in your seats for a second and contemplate anything we've talked about this morning. Maybe there's some things you need to pray about, you need to lay before the Lord, and then whenever you're ready, you come on forward and uh, participate in this incredibly, once again, expensive meal that's been purchased for you by the Son of God.